You can take a seat. All right. Stop having so much fun. Good morning. Hey, also, uh, thanks, Doug, for that presentation. And keep in mind as well that other important values, there's a, an election coming up here. If you haven't voted already, I encourage you to vote. And uh, some important issues all around. And we uh, published on our e-letter some perspectives on faith and public policy, faith and politics. So I encourage you to check those out. Those are on the e-letter this past week. Benjamin Franklin is the person known to have first written about daylight savings time. He actually wrote that in a satirical essay. So no one's really sure if he meant it for, for real, for seriously, but here we are. The, um, I wonder with some of you, how long it, let's do a little straw poll here this morning. How long it takes you to change the time in your car? Okay? Okay? How long? Less than a week. Less than a week. Uh, okay, all right. Less than a month. Okay. Just wait six months. There we go. <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be fine in six months. <laughs> Have you heard the endearing Huntington Bank radio ads? about the little boy who vows to grow up and change the way banks work. Around a dinner table, he listens to his father's hardships from bank wrongs and says, when I grow up, I am going to work for a bank and do things right. And so 15 years later, he returns to the family nest. They're sitting around the table, and he tells his mom that Mom, because of my work at the bank, there's now interest-free checking and, 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 uh, and overdraft protection, 24-hour overdraft protection. And his mother just, you can just picture her lighting up and she proclaims, we knew you could do it, Johnny. We knew you could do it. Did you know that there really was a little boy like that? There was. When a bribing scandal broke in 1924 tying government officials to rich oil leases, the little boy's father denounced the corrupt politicians and high-priced lawyers who defended them. The little 11-year-old boy read the paper for more details and told his mother, when I get big, I'll be a lawyer they can't bribe. Second story. One day, this same little boy was helping his cousins cut corn for his Uncle Howard. The boys started throwing corn at each other instead of onto the wagon. Uncle Howard gave his two sons a solid whacking. The boy, the little boy, walked over to his uncle and said, I was throwing corn too. I'm just as guilty as they are, so you must also punish me. Oh, right? Come on. That's, oh, so honest. Later, this same little boy caught a woman shoplifting in his family's store. The dad insisted that they have her arrested. The little boy worried about his classmates, children of this woman, and appealed to his mom and dad to do something, anything different. 
So the next time the shoplifting occurred, the mother followed the woman outside the store and gently confronted her. The woman tearfully confessed, then offered to pay back what she had stolen a little each month. It took months and months, but eventually she paid every cent. The mother said about the little boy, he was right. Now hold on just one second, Josh. Does anybody have any idea who this little boy is? Let's go ahead and see the image. Let me fill in a little bit of the background for those of you that are, that are uh, born after 1975. <laughs> this is Richard Nixon, former President of the United States, 1973 or 4. He resigned in order to prevent impeachment. He was connected to what was then considered the worst government scandal ever, Watergate. Now, ironically, the most sensational scandal prior to Watergate was, guess what? It was the Teapot Dome scandal of 1924. The same one that spurred little 11-year-old Richard to say he would grow up and become an honest lawyer. What happened? What happened? Was he sincere at 11? From grade school to graduate school, his peers implicitly trusted him. But even at that age, you could see some gaps in his character. And noble dreams, as we know, were eventually devoured by an overwhelming desire to succeed. That insatiable drive became a lust inside of Nixon, deep inside of Nixon. It narrowed his vision. It deceived him. It caused him to abandon the honesty that he had so prized as a little boy. He became a slave to his runaway ambition. Now, it's easy for us to sit here today and to judge Nixon and to judge him harshly. But is he alone? Or is his experience more close to home than we would like to admit? I remember a time in my life some years ago now when an action, an initial action, with good intent, and with good motive, made a slow turn south. Good desires were slowly turning into wrong desires. And I naively allowed those desires to be fed. The feeding of the desires made me dwell on it even more. Until the point I could not stop thinking about this very wrong desire. I was becoming a slave. How about you? How about you? Is there something you want so desperately, you are convinced you cannot be happy without it, that it, it, and it so controls and bends your desires that you are enslaved to it? What do we do? Again, in this section, Jesus has some remarkable answers to that question. Uh, read, open your Bibles with me. It's page 894. And let me read this text for today. It's in John 8, verses 29 through 38. We pick up the discourse here that Mike 
left last week, Jesus is talking about his relationship to the Father. And in verse 29, he says this, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth. And now a phrase that's a part of our common everyday culture. You may not know that Jesus said it, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. There's three things that we're going to see, we see in this passage. We see a condition, we see a surprise, and we see a threat. Let's invite uh, Jesus to speak to us this morning. Father, thank you so much for these words that have been preserved for us. Lord, ancient words, but words that reverberate with such power and relevance in our lives today. And we ask you to open up our hearts, Father, to hear and to listen and to see how these words can work in our lives. And that you'd open us up to be honest and real with you and maybe even with others here about the desires that consume us, the, de the desires that control us, the desires that are changing the people that we're becoming. God, we want to be free, and we want your word to set us free. Lord, I know there's friends here and people here that are struggling with really bad, challenging, difficult things. And they're wrestling with desires and, and, and thoughts that are... Um, causing their souls to fall apart and disintegrate. And I ask you, to, great healer, to mend us this morning, to connect this morning your life with our life, your heart with our heart, and to not let us walk out of this place the same. Father, um, what we want more than anything else is a sense of your presence here a presence that can surprise us, overwhelm us, amaze us, or stagger us if we will let you out of the, the small boxes we put you in. Lead us. God, make us open, willing, ready, hungry. You said if we're filled, we'll walk away empty, but if we recognize our poverty, you'll fill us. And through Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. A condition, a surprise, a threat. First, a condition. The audience listening to Jesus has come to a certain threshold of belief. But as we saw a few chapters ago, Jesus wants to discourage superficial bandwagon faith. He is not 
after appearances. Headlines are not his ultimate goal. Securing genuine belief is, and so he presses here for commitment. And so he gives a condition. And he says, you want to be my disciples? Great. But to be my disciple, you must abide in my word. The word abide means to continue in, remain, endure, or hold fast. Holding fast involves believing first and listening. Believing arrives at a settled conclusion. This is what believing, to believe is to come to a settled conclusion in your mind that indeed these words are divine words and therefore you give them weight and significance to direct your life. And listening is not a matter of accumulating knowledge so that you can pass a, some exam. We listen in order to deepen our trust in and to act on His words. We lay down our rights. We lay down our agendas. We follow Him through allowing His words to penetrate every fiber of our being. So, that's number one. There's a condition involved in following Jesus if you want to be His follower. Here's the second thing. We'll spend a little bit more time on this one. There's a surprise here. There's a a flat out, we're surprised by this. You know, when we think about Christianity, when we think about religion, we tend to think about restraint. And yet Jesus here offers an upside-down, unconventional vision of freedom. We liken freedom to autonomy, doing whatever we please, doing whatever we want. Nobody can tell me what to do. And so if you tell a person to lay down your rights, to surrender their goals, to submit to a truth greater than themselves, that doesn't appear to be the language of freedom, but rather the language of restriction. You're limiting options. You are suspending choices. It was a surprise to us today, and it was a surprise to his audience, who were offended by the claim that they weren't free. Now, of course, the Jews were very often subject to nations, other nations. Here, they're, at this very moment, they are subject to Rome. But they placed a very high premium on freedom. It was hammered into their soul from birth. It was the birthright. Freedom was the birthright of every Jew. In the law, it was laid down that no Jew, however poor, must ever be sold as a slave. Even in servitude, they retained a fierce Spirit of independence. The historian Josephus said of the Jews, they have an inviolable attachment to liberty. And they say God is their only ruler and Lord. So given that, we're not surprised that they were not just a little bit annoyed at the assertion that they were slaves. But look at how Jesus responds to that. He doesn't apologize. He's undeterred. And he reframes for them the meaning of freedom. He does this by shifting the location of what enslaves us. From a who to a what. 
They saw freedom strictly in political terms, as most of us do, as most Americans do. But Jesus saw freedom in spiritual terms. It is not Rome that enslaves, he says, but what? It's the human heart. It is sin that enslaves. How? How does sin enslave us? Two things, two ways. First, by controlling us. Sin controls us. Sin narrows our vision. Sin limits our choices when we believe we must have something or someone at all costs. Sin traps us and renders us powerless by creating in us an all-consuming desire. It is a desire that yields great pleasure in its pursuit and in its acquisition. But at the same time, it begins to change who we are and the person that we become. To the degree that something or someone controls us, to that same degree, we are no longer free. So one is it controls us. Two, how does sin enslave us? It enslaves us by corrupting us. For all you IT people out there, which is most of you, <laughs> think of it this way. Sin is like a computer virus. It corrupts us from within. When a virus corrupts on a hard drive, think about this, it preys it doesn't work in a vacuum, but it preys on something pre-existing, something solid, something constructed with integrity, something made for a specific purpose, and it makes it no longer functional. Sin, in the same way, takes good desires within us and bends them towards self-gratification. It takes our primary function to worship God and bends it towards self-worship. It takes the gifts God has given us to bless others and steals them, robs them for our own gain. This is how sin makes us slaves. It controls us and it corrupts us. It changes us. Well, let me take just one more step back and briefly answer this question because you might be asking, well, what really is sin? What is sin itself? Very briefly, sin is this. It's finding our identity. It's basing the purpose of our lives on something other than God. It is desiring something more than Jesus. It is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. It is the breaking of the greatest commandment, which is to love God first and to love God wholeheartedly. And if you break the second commandment or the fifth commandment or the tenth commandment or the 251st commandment, they are all derived from the first. You break the fifth by beginning to break the first itself. And so the corruption of our spiritual hardwiring creates what we can call soul disintegration. We lose touch with who we are. 
and it causes spiritual death, and it cuts us off from God. We become tone deaf spiritually. Clouded by consuming desires, we abandon common sense priorities, the order of our life turns into chaos, and a pattern of self-destruction and many times some kind of addiction begins. Either addiction to something or just flat-out apathy. And if nothing steps in the way, this ultimately leads to hell, an inseparable chasm from God and His goodness. Friends, this is Soul Anatomy 101. Soul Anatomy 101. It was that way in Jesus' day. It is the same way today. Remember, a few years ago, counseling a young man, a sweet, precious young man, really loved this guy dearly. He's no longer a part of this body. He is a man with a uh, sweet temperament, a, a very self-aware, very sensitive, and very much struggling to want to do right and very passionate about being holy and, uh, and wanting his life to, to conform to what Jesus wants. And so, invariably, that kind of passion brings a struggle, right? It brings difficulty. At the same time, he had a brother, has a brother, who is agnostic. And that brother, not following God, doesn't have the same hang-ups, doesn't have the same struggles or challenges to try to make Jesus first in his life. He was urging and coaxing and appealing to his brother, drop the whole Christ thing. Just drop it. Because, listen, listen, you know, it's you Christians who are all tied up in the knots. I don't worry about any of that stuff. And there's a certain appeal there, isn't there? But we have to define freedom carefully here because no matter how good sin feels in the moment, or with this young person, it wasn't just an action, it was just the feeling of autonomy. The feeling that, I'm accountable to no one. No matter how good that feels in the moment, how could we conclude it's free if the inevitable result is soul disintegration, if the inevitable result is regret in this life and eternal lostness in the next? Surely that can't fit anybody's definition of freedom. And so we asked, how does sin enslave? It enslaves by controlling and enslaves by corrupting. And what is the surprise? Again, look at the text. The truth, the truth, which I thought the truth was going to make me not free, actually is the truth that will set you free. It's the truth that will align your heart to God so that you know what your purpose and function is. And when you operate with your purpose and your function, you will experience what freedom truly is. You have to have for free freedom, you must have a desire for something, you must have the ability to do it, and you must have the opportunity to do it. And if we stick with our definition, it must lead to the best possible outcome. And that's what Christ does in our lives. That's the power of His Word in our lives. A few things here that He sets us free from. He sets us free from fear. When we get unhinged from self, when we get unhinged from our narcissism, we find that God frees us from fears, uncertainties of the future. We find that God frees us from ourselves, the tendency towards self-absorption and self-preoccupation. 
He frees us from the domination of others. In case you haven't realized it, you're, you know, it could be in a hundred different places, but there are people in this world that will seek to control and manipulate and dominate you. When we experience Christ and His freedom, we begin to see, we begin to see and learn and understand how we, cannot, how we can not allow others to control and dominate our lives. Nor does pleasing them. We're set free to not have to please people and fulfill all their expectations. Again, when, they're, when they are unhealthy. Desire, ability, opportunity, and a flourishing future are a part of the kind of freedom that Christ offers, freeing us from fears, freeing us from ourselves, freeing us from the domination of others, and ultimately getting on a track to free us from the effect and the impact of sin in our lives. Now, how does all this work? I want to try to answer that by going to the final point, the threat. We've looked at a condition, we've looked at the surprise of freedom, and now finally the threat in verse 35. Jesus said, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. Now, who is the slave in this passage? Who is the slave? I believe the slave in this passage is members of this audience listening to him. And what is their sin? What's blinding them from receiving the words of Jesus? Remember, we said that sin is taking a good thing and doing what? Turning it into an ultimate thing. Something we give our ultimate allegiance to. For these people listening, what is their identity? What is their source of pride? It's pretty obvious. Just throw it, sh shout it out. Yeah, yeah, here's our defense. Ironically, it is their sense of spiritual entitlement, their inherited privilege, that prevents them from accepting the words of Christ. We are the offspring of Abraham. They had come to treat God so casually since they, since they had all this down. They treated God casually and kept Him in their back pocket in case we needed Him. This is what prevented them from seeing Christ. And by the way, the same thing can happen to us. We can assume, well, I'm from this family or I'm from this part of the world. I have this inherited privilege. I have this sense of entitlement. And that indeed can prevent you from becoming a son. Prevent you from becoming a daughter of God. Because you don't recognize, you will not recognize your spiritual poverty. Others of you, that identity might be your wealth. It might be the things that you possess, the things that you own. For others, it might be your appearance, your, your looks. For others, it might be the degree you have or the vocation you have. It's that source of pride. It's that source of identity. It's where you get your comfort. It's where you get your life. It's what you are convinced that is what will make me happy. And in so many words, Jesus goes on to say to them, if you're spiritual heirs of Abraham, then why are you part of this mob hysteria seeking to kill me? All I've done is spoken words of truth, and you're trying to kill me. Jesus is saying in so many words, you're tied to him, you're tied to Abraham, does not give you an automatic pass 
with God. Okay, back to the verse, verse 35. Who is the Son? Who is the Son? Yeah, it's Jesus. And, and, and look at the subtle nuance here. What is the point of difference between Jesus and the Jews listening to him? What is the point of difference? It's their status, right? It's who they are. It is their spiritual status. Slaves never have a permanent place around the table. Sons and daughters do. Slaves are not part of the family inheritance. Sons and daughters are. What is Jesus hinting at here? I think it's suggesting this, that sin, sin, this power to corrupt, this power to control, what brings ultimately, if undealt with, a curse of condemnation in our lives. Sin is deeper than simply what we do. As we hinted at earlier, we are sinners. That's why we sin. We sin because that is in our nature. We have an impulse for good like we saw with, with our former president. But our desires get the better of us. They bend selfward rather than Godward, and the result is human shame. Our God-given dignity is stained. Our great worth is distorted, and we carry about shame, whether you're religious or not. That shame is the reason why people do the things they do. That shame becomes the reason why people do the things they do. They might be running from it. They might be running towards something else. But that becomes the core motivating factor of their lives. So what is the threat? The threat to his listening audience is that if they do not abandon their pride in ethnic identity, they will never become true sons and true daughters. Yes, even pride in one's nation a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing. And the same with us. Wealth, status, living in a certain neighborhood, being able to eat at certain restaurants, um, coming from a certain family, coming from a certain part of the world, all of these things can become the thing that we really actually trust in and draw our comfort from and they will prevent us from becoming sons and daughters. So it's quite clear that freedom, freedom does not start with a moral commitment. Freedom does not stop with, I'm going to stop obsessing. I'm going to stop obsessing. I'm going to stop obsessing about this sinful desire. Freedom begins with a change in status. Freedom begins with a change in nature. For some of you, that might be just brand new, brand new information, a brand new reality. For others of you, it's likely something that you need to be reminded in on a regular basis, that you have been given a new nature, a new identity. It is only by becoming sons and daughters that we will have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to make truly free choices. 
This is what, why Jesus came. Jesus came to redeem us for this kind of freedom. Look at Galatians 3.14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what Christ did. Sin controlled us, corrupted us, left us spiritually dead. We stand guilty and condemned. The word cursed means that. It means condemned. Jesus became condemned for us. As the law prescribed, He hung on a tree for us, and that's what built the bridge in that inseparable chasm that I mentioned earlier. That's what connects us if we believe with the Father. And secondly, He gives us a new nature, a brand new identity. And catch this, that new nature can empower us, it can reorient us to see the absolute treasure, worth, and beauty of Jesus and to see why He is more desirable than anything or anyone else. That's how changed. That's what can break open the attachment that you carry to a thing or to a person that you obsess about. It is seeing the absolute treasure, worth, and beauty of Jesus. That's what will break that attachment, that obsession, that addiction, the beginning of it. It is a vision of relating to Him that breaks us from these desires. It is a vision of Him that begins to align us with our true purpose and our true function. And when we operate in that, we're experiencing freedom. So, the application today is very simple. It's one sentence. And that is to reorient your life and your identity around the words of Jesus. I think that is the message contained in these few verses. Reorient. Your life, your identity, center it in the words of Jesus. Here's my exhortation to you every day. Every day, open this book. Every day. And invite His words of freedom to speak to you. Moving your most heartfelt attachment from things to Him. Let those words move you. Don't read them sterilely. Let them move you into an active, ongoing, everyday conversation with Jesus. Talk back to Him. He's talking to you. Talk back. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I mean just converse. Back with Him. He's talking to you. He's trying to. And so as you read, pray over what you're reading. God, what does it mean? And how do I make this real in my life? Give His words the appropriate weight and significance of divine words. Don't read for knowledge alone, but read and reflect to discover who you are first. We read first to discover who we are. And then secondly, we read to discover how to live and how to love in this world. I would encourage you to establish a daily rhythm, beginning and ending your day with His Word. The morning when you first wake up and the evening when you go to bed are your two most impressionable moments of your day. And they are the part of the day that I would urge you to give to the Word of God and to invite God to speak to you. You say to me, well, I'm too busy. I can't 
add that to my day. And here's what I would say to you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you give yourself to this, if you give yourself to this, I, I can just about guarantee you that the things that you think are, that I'm so busy, the things that I think must get done, the things that I think are so important, so valuable, I'm telling you, your list is going to do two things. It's either going to shrink in its number or it's going to shrink in its importance. When you begin your day and you end your day by listening to the words and responding to the words of Jesus. Now look back at verse 29. And we see here a beautiful picture of this freedom. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. This is the Father. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's freedom. There is desire. He desires to please the Father. There is ability. In the limitation of his humanity, as a man, Jesus trusted the Father and the power of the Father working in him. Friends, that's the same power that we have access to. And so there's ability. And thirdly, there is opportunity. No person or circumstance will control Jesus' obedience to the Father. No person or circumstance can prevent Him from acting on this desire to please the Father. Neither fear nor domination from others or the desire for self-gratification enslaves Jesus or deters Him from the purpose for which he was sent. That's freedom. And that's the same kind of freedom that you and I can learn to walk in. His example underscores the choice that we all have. And here it is. Here's your choice. Living to please God. Living to please Him brings us into our true selves, empowers us to act on what we desire, and produces the best possible outcome. Or, living to please self brings us into a distorted self, a distorted identity, made powerless by controlling and corrupted desires, and it ends in self-destruction. This is a choice that we all have on how we are going to live and orient and construct our lives. Will you reorient your life? Will you? Around the words? Will you reorient, reorient your identity? Around the words of Jesus. They will set you free. Jesus lived out His calling perfectly, didn't He? He lived it out perfectly in beauty and majesty and freedom and, and courage and compassion and tenderness. He lived it out perfectly. We, not so much. We, not so much. But we're growing, aren't we? We're, we're seeking to understand who we are and live in it. But we've failed lots and will fail lots in the future as well. And it's, but because He lived it perfectly, it's why He was recognized by God His Father as a worthy substitute to die for our unworthiness, our imperfections. 
It's why on the first Sunday of every month, we seek to see Jesus afresh through the bread and through the cup. And through these two symbols, we remember His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His enthronement as a king. Um, Ushers, you can begin to make your way up here and band, begin to make your way up here. Um, and actually, uh, you, you can begin, yeah, you can begin to release, release people. You'll be released here by, by our friends. And as you come up to receive the cup and the bread, take them back to your seats, hold on to them. We'll take them together. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we invite you to observe what takes place here. This indeed is a holy moment. But we'd ask you to not yet take the bread and the cup. For by taking them, you are saying that you have asked Christ into your life. By taking the bread and cup, you're saying that my life is sustained by the the bread of Christ, the food of Christ. Conversely, if today, if this is the day, the glorious day that you want to receive Jesus, to believe in Him, if you want to begin to embark on that pathway to freedom, then by all means, let this be the glorious first day of your participation in taking the bread and in taking the cup.